You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. So anyone that knows me personally knows that I despise politics and find that anyone that's highly polarized in one camp or the other often demonstrates what they don't know more than what they do know. But more recently, there's been a few elected officials on the progressive or liberal side of the political spectrum that have come out and said Bitcoin is bad for the environment and a few other arguments that are just highly misinformed in my personal opinion. So instead of attacking anyone politically, I have a guest that dispels these myths with sound reasoning and data and analysis. And here's the best part. He comes from the progressive side of the aisle to make the case. Regardless of what your political affiliation is, the one thing I care about is highlighting deep, critical thinking and facts behind how Bitcoin is actually good for the environment and from numerous different vantage points of why it's good. So my guest today, Mr. Jason Mayer, is the author of a book called A Progressive Case for Bitcoin, and he does an exemplary job explaining why some of these ill-informed talking points need much deeper analysis and consideration. So with that, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Jason Mayer. And Jason, I'm excited to get into this. You have some really interesting perspectives and some amazing points that you've made in in your book which I've got right here, the progressive case for Bitcoin for people that are interested in checking that out. But welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you about it. Jason, you start off the book and you're talking about a poster that you hung in your office and <laughs> you're a teacher and uh, you talk about how the poster was, I don't know if provocative is the right word, but you were trying <laughs> to generate a conversation and you got it pretty quickly with with a lot of the folks that you were, you know, working alongside. Talk sure. to us about that process. Talk to us about the process leading up to having the courage or <laughs> the yeah. the intestinal fortitude to like pin that thing on the wall. What sure. led to that moment? So as you said, I'm a high school math teacher. That's been my dream since I was a little kid. So I'm, I'm currently like my fiat job is sort of my dream job from when I was little. But like, as you might imagine, like being in the education business, a lot of my coworkers, uh, like me, they're left-leaning, left-of-center, liberal, progressive. I had been into Bitcoin for a while. I sort of gotten into it through a mathematical lens and sort of understood a little bit of the computer science behind it, was really excited about it. And there was this moment where I, like, I had a couple of people I knew in real life that were into Bitcoin, but not many. And I had found this poster online and I, I liked it. So I printed it off and I said, you know, I'll put this up in my office at, at work. And I talk about this in the book. I did not know really what to expect. I kind of expected people to sort of like dismiss it or kind of claim that I was an idiot or falling for a Ponzi scheme. You know, I, that's kind of what I expected. But what I got was the teacher who sits next to me in the office saw it almost immediately and just essentially gasped like her mouth had <laughs> just dropped open and she was like what are you doing like i don't want my kids future like ruined for this fake money you're ruining the environment like this is just you know it's like bitcoin is obviously bad like i can't believe somebody that i respected would be into it like this whole like sort of monologue and 
I honestly did not expect that. Like, I honestly was like, oh, there are people who kind of give me a hard time about like being into Bitcoin, but certainly they're not going to like attack fundamentally like <laughs> the value proposition or something in that way. And so I didn't know what to expect. I, like, I, I, I didn't expect that. I didn't know how to respond. And I think that I opened the book by saying like, I did not have a good response. Like I sort of answered the questions and had the conversation, but I was not anticipating the animosity, you know, for Bitcoin that, that I got. So that first conversation did did not go as well as I wanted it to. And sort of since then I've I've gotten on this, you know, kick that was sort of the kickoff to say, hey, it's fun to explain Bitcoin to people. It's fun to answer like well-intentioned questions about it. It's fun to sort of help people see the value in it. And uh, that got me on this path that eventually led to the book that I wrote. And, you know, it's been history since, right? It's just been, that was like sort of one of the defining moments on the journey. You bring up the energy part. And I think that this for a lot of progressives or and really anybody that looks at Bitcoin and they, the, the first thing that, that they'll say is just, well, it's just consuming all of this energy. It's going to consume the world's energy by two years from now. Or whatever. And some, yeah, yeah. some of those dates that people were saying have already passed and clearly it hasn't. Mm-hmm. But in your third chapter of the book, you really do a deep dive on this one to cover it at in depth. Walk us through this chapter, kind of the, the architecture of it, and then what some of the finer points that you were really kind of making in the book. And just in general, like when you're talking to somebody on this particular point of energy use. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Like the like you said, it's chapter three, which is in a sense like the real first chapter, right? There's like sort of like why the book, and then why Bitcoin, and then like I dive into like the issues. It, like the energy issue is probably number one, as you said, for a lot of people who find themselves knowing very little about Bitcoin. If they've only heard one thing, it's probably that it's like a waste of energy or uses too much energy, especially if they're left leaning. I found it it was important to get that conversation out front pretty early in the book. And it's the longest chapter of the book. And it's the most, you know, the like the editors kept wanting to break it up. I was like, no, I, I like it. It's like, it's supposed to be the longest chapter. It's the most important one, especially for the target audience. And I think it's, you know, I break it up into a couple of different sort of themes through, you know, having the conversation about energy use and the environmental impact. One is just trying to steer people away from this knee-jerk reaction, which is like energy use equals bad. That's just as a starting place, like that's where a lot of progressive people might just think, right? That's maybe layer one thinking about it. Like, oh, if you're using energy, then you're wasting it or you're not, you know, you're doing harm to the environment. In order to really combat that, you have to get at it from the angle of what's what's the energy being used for? Like, what's the use case for this energy? Why is it important to use it? And therefore, like if we have a reason to use the energy, then we can actually have a more meaningful debate about like, is it worth it? Like, is is what you're saying is providing actually worth that energy or not? And do you need to use it? That's sort of the starting point, right? Like, what's the energy being used for? And then you can get into say, all right, well, there's no reason that we can't be more efficient when we use the energy or we can't use more green energy or sustainable energy if we want to mine Bitcoin or do anything else, right? Like, this is an important part of it. Like there's no path that I see to like increasing sustainable green energy without Bitcoin playing a major role, right? To sort of build out that infrastructure and to support the build out of of sustainable green energy. So these are things that perfectly align with like progressive values. So things that people care about, and they have never viewed it through this lens. They've absolutely only viewed it sort of through like the you should feel guilty about using energy lens. 
which is very powerful as sort of a political message, but it's not accurate. So you just have to find it, kind of get people to that point where they're willing to consider the nuances of like, not all energy use is bad. This energy use for Bitcoin is important because of all of the things that it provides us. And it also has opportunities to do the things that you want to do, right? Like if you're a progressive person and you want more like green electricity out there, like this is a method to actually achieve that goal. That's sort of like broad overview of, of the chapter. I go into a lot of specifics trying to explain things that most, you know, the book is targeted towards a lay audience, right? So they haven't really thought about like what what does it mean to balance the energy you know grid what does it mean to build out infrastructure what does it mean that like the energy produced has to equal the demand at all times like those are novel concepts to people so i try to just explain that in the best way that i can to uh, to that target audience you know one of the struggles that i have personally when i get in an engagement with somebody on this particular topic is i'll say well you know you might not find it valuable. And you even mentioned this in your book. You say most people who criticize Bitcoin's energy use are assuming it's worthless from the start. Once you get past that and you convince them that maybe there is value here, the next pivot that they go to is, well, there's other cryptocurrencies that don't require as much energy. And so like, why aren't we using those? Right. right. Which then goes <laughs> down a whole nother rabbit hole of deep complexity of trying to explain to them why you have to tether you know this virtual <laughs> coins to physical reality through energy use which is really difficult to do so yeah yeah take- and that's i mean i think that's that's sort of a consistent theme right whenever you're talking to somebody who's completely new to the bitcoin sort of realm like it takes hours and hours and hours to learn about bitcoin right and so for a lot of people i would imagine this book might be their first touch to actually think about it deeply but what you're saying is right. Like every conversation you have, like they'll ask a question and then it puts you in this whole other direction, right? Like, oh, now I need to explain proof of stake versus proof of work and why like this system isn't sustainable and, and why it doesn't actually help people and, and all of that. It's hard, right? You have to have bite-sized pieces and you have to sort of meet people where they are and you can't try to teach them all of it at once, right? These are sort of lessons that you learn as a, like, you know, I've, I've been teaching for 20 years, teenagers, uh, trigonometry against their will, right? So you learn these, <laughs> these tricks, like, all right, I can't teach you all of Bitcoin at once. We need to break it up a little bit. So, yeah. Talk to us a little bit more about demand response systems for folks that heard you say that phrase. You have an example in your book where you talk about the July 9th, 2022 event where a thousand megawatts came back online during an event where they were running out of there there was too much demand on the network because on the energy network because of very hot conditions and this 1000 megawatts that came online from bitcoin miners actually helped cool 66,000 homes so talk to people about like what's happening here how that's even possible why it's different than other energy consumers yeah, I mean, I think demand response is a is a is a critical component to sort of what makes Bitcoin valuable in in sort of the electrical grid sphere, right? Because as I said before, every ounce of energy, every little bit of electricity you produce has to be consumed immediately, right? Like it, it's transported to a consumer, a light bulb turns on, a toaster turns on, like that's immediate. You can't really store it. The, the battery technology isn't like sufficient for that scale. And so what you end up having is, you know, in a, in a situation like you described, where you have this heat wave and a lot of people are turning on their air conditioners and it might actually be a matter of life and death. Like if you can get into air conditioning and, and be comfortable and, and uh, be safe, 
that uses a lot of energy like all at once that possibly the people operating the grid didn't anticipate or they don't actually have enough potential to create that, that much electricity as it's needed. And so the demand response is when that demand for electricity goes up, then Bitcoin miners can instantaneously and in a dynamic way power down and provide the energy that they were using back to the grid so that people who need it can use it. It's really like a fundamentally like a dynamic system, right? Where a Bitcoin miner can power up or power down like almost instantly. And it's not unique to Bitcoin mining. There's other industries that use a lot of electricity that provide demand response, like aluminum smelting and iron, you know, all of these other examples. But they're just not as good as Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin can power down immediately and almost like instant response to a spike in demand. They can stay off as long as they need to, to sort of satisfy that demand and then power back up when they're needed. So this is critical because, well, for lots of reasons, right? Like you have just general electricity and people need it, then Bitcoin miners like have been using it, but they can give it back. But in particular, like if you want to build out like green energy sources, those are usually wind and solar. Those are intermittent, right? So you have uh, peaks in producing electricity that don't always match the peaks in the demand. And so what can happen is the Bitcoin miners can come in, use that electricity that's being produced by the green source, monetize that energy, right? They're paying for that electricity. And then when that energy production levels off or goes down, they can power down as needed. And it's super helpful because, like I said, you can't imagine a world in which solar and, and wind and all of that is being used like at scale without some sort of stabilizing force. In preparation for the book, it's, this actually isn't in the book. But I had an interesting conversation with somebody like the CEO of an energy company, like an actual like person who like runs a company that provides energy to consumers. And also in that meeting was the person who ran sort of the, the Bitcoin mining contracts for that company. And it was an interesting exchange because the CEO was sort of like standoffish about Bitcoin. Like she didn't like it. She was a little skeptical of it. And the person who runs those contracts was in the meeting too. And he was also sort of playing that game and say like, yeah, like we're not like thrilled. I don't know. But I had a follow-up meeting with just the guy who runs the contracts. And he told me when the CEO wasn't in the room, like, this is absolutely what we need. Like we need a large, like, really? Absolutely. And so like when he was by himself with me, he was saying like, this is exactly what energy companies need. They need a large flexible demand that we need absolutely to be able to sell a lot of electricity to like Bitcoin miners who are willing to give it back when we need it. Like it helps us, it helps them. Like this is exactly what's needed. He also brought up this issue. Like right now there's such a race for electricity companies to buy land that's going to be good for renewables, whether it's solar or wind. And so there, those electricity companies that are pr- like producing electricity are buying up that land and that real estate right now without much demand to support it. Cause they know in the future, they're going to need sort of socially, they're going to need to be able to provide like green electricity, but there's not enough demand in the lo- locations where they are. And he was saying, absolutely, like, you know, location agnostic Bitcoin miners are going to be perfect for that, like use case. We buy a bunch of land, we want to build out infrastructure for solar. There's not enough demand yet. We're going to put in Bitcoin miners for a couple of years until there is demand like locally, in terms of residential commercial uh, need for it. And that sort of Bitcoin mining provides the bridge for that company. And he said, all of the electricity companies are competing for the same real estate right now. And so they're buying up this land and they don't like they need this tool to, to, to be able to use it and make, make use of it. 
one of the other sections you talk about in chapter three is this embedded incentives for efficiency. Explain what you're getting at with this. Yeah, I think the example I use is like, you know, we all have a refrigerator in our house and how many of us have like the most up-to-date, efficient refrigerator, (laughs) you know, like that uses like energy the most efficiently, like not many, right? Like if you bought your refrigerator more than six months ago, there's a better version out there that does the same job, but is more efficient. And I think it's just a description because a lot of people who are new to Bitcoin might not understand that like, the technology Bitcoin miners, like the actual computers that are doing this work is improving constantly. And so I go through a little bit of the history to say like when, you know, we first started using graphics cards or we first started using an ASIC compared to now, like just the efficiency, not like how much, what's the hash rate, but like what's the hash rate per kilowatt, you know, it's, it's actually improved tremendously, like, you know, orders of magnitude. And so just sort of speaking to this idea that like, we shouldn't demonize the electricity use, but we should be open to saying like, hey, can I do this same job more efficiently? Can I use less electricity to do the same job, for example? And if people are willing to say, oh, I should be able to do that with my car or my TV or my refrigerator, that's already happening with Bitcoin miners. And it's not a matter of like, some government regulation to say your car needs to be this efficient and so does your Bitcoin miner. It's actually built in. The incentives are built in because Bitcoin mining is a really low margin proposition, right? So like it doesn't help you to have not the most efficient machine. I think that that section is important just to help people understand like this is going to trend more efficient over time. And also paired with this idea that it's like a non-rival use of energy, right? So like if energy prices go up because demand is up, then we're powering down. So exactly what we were talking about before. So in conjunction, those are pretty powerful arguments, I think, for people who are just starting to grapple with this idea of like, wow, I thought that energy use was bad because that's what the politicians were telling me. And I always felt guilty about it. And now I'm thinking about it in a more nuanced way. I think it's just all part of the same conversation. I think this one is so lost on most people, even people that have been in Bitcoin for a while. I think they just really don't understand how there's a natural incentive structure to become more efficient. And you're dealing with Moore's law that you give it four years, like there is a tremendous change in mining rigs that were out four years ago as far as their efficiency to plow through the the computations or the guesses and the energy that they're consuming to supply the number of guesses that they're providing relative to four years earlier or any period earlier. Yeah. And um, I think what most people understand is that the the hash the hash rate's going up, right? Mm-hmm. Like Anybody who's ever bought a miner knows like, oh, six months, like, oh, my, I could have had 140 terahash per second. That's not the issue, right? The issue is like, what's the, like, what is the hash rate per joule of energy yes. used? That's improving tremendously. Like, I forget what the numbers are, but they're in the book, like, uh, like 50 fold, 50 million fold, like, you know, improvement over the energy efficiency to do the same number of hashes. I think it's critically important to just sort of highlight that for people who haven't really thought about it a lot. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Another topic that you talk about that I really like this idea is uh, the idea of consumerism. Talk to us about this. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the... There's a big overlap in the target audience of people like who, oh, I'm a liberal, progressive, left-to-center person. And also, I'm really disgusted by the amount of consumerism that's going on in the world. And people are just buying cheap stuff. All And people have a problem with that, right? For lots of good reasons. I don't think a lot of people on the left have really thought through sort of how fiat money in an inflationary monetary environment contributes to that consumerism. It's not just that people are greedy or impatient or always want more. It's like your money is melting away, right? Like you're actually like incentivized to keep buying more and keep buying different things. And companies are incentivized to sell you something that's going to break in a couple of years. So you have to buy a new one. And so all of these things like really great against most people that sit down to think about them for a little bit because it doesn't feel right. Like it feels like one of the things that's broken in the world. But not a lot of people are thinking about it through sort of like, what's the financial system that incentivizes this behavior? What's incentivizing companies to do this? What's incentivizing consumers to do this? And so, you know, for a lot of people, this might be the first sort of like 
touch point to say like, oh, well, like I was always taught in economics class that we need inflation, but like, look at some of the like second order effects of that, right? It's people are just buying a bunch of plastic stuff. Things are breaking all the time. Um, this is doing untold damage to the environment, right? I put it in the environment chapter because that's exactly what it is, right? Like we're just consuming things and we're incentivized to do so. Now that's not the whole picture, but it's a pretty important part of it. So I think that that's for me personally, like once I got into Bitcoin, I changed completely my consuming patterns, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking about every purchase differently. I'm thinking about like, does this need to happen? Do I need to replace this? Is this version that I have good enough? Like all of those things that I don't think I was thinking about in the, with the same intentionality before I got into Bitcoin. And I'm hoping for other people to have that same sort of epiphany. When I look at consumerism and I'm saying why, why have people been cognitively conditioned to spend as soon as it gets into their wallet? And I think that Sailor does such a great job talking about like inflation is a vector. It really kind of depends where it nests itself. But if we were going to really zoom out, like way out and just say, well, how much, how many monetary units are being added into the system, regardless of where they kind of nest themselves, whether it goes into this really finite thing and the price explodes 100% up in three years, or it's not going into this one area where there's only like 1% inflation. But if we zoom out and literally just look at the monetary units from like an M2 standpoint, and we would do a compound annual growth rate over a long period of time, call it 20 years, that number's between like 7 to 8%. When we look at just because a person doesn't know that that's really kind of the inflation rate, doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they don't intuitively experience it and feel it in the way that they're making everyday decisions in the in the free in the quote unquote free and open market. I'm gonna, <laughs> and, and so I guess well, I, I guess all I'm saying is when I well I guess when I personally think of consumerism, it's like people are losing their buying power to the tune of seven or eight percent annually and when you compound it it's really aggressive and so they almost feel like they've got to go out and spend the money as soon as it hits their their pocket because if they don't they know it's just going to be worth less the day after it's just crazy to see it kind of unfold and it seems to almost be accelerating now versus like when we were younger i don't know but well, I, I think you're right, because I think what you said was that the person feels like they have to spend it because this is not like, you know, the average consumer is not running the equations and saying like, oh, I better go buy the new thing. Right. This yeah. is just something that you feel in the ether. Right. And I think it's great because the, the opposite is also true. Right. Like people don't need to understand every nuance about Bitcoin to understand that it's better money. Right. They'll just feel that it preserves their purchasing power over time better. And it, it allows them to interact with people as adoption grows. It allows that to happen more efficiently. So people like just the same way people don't need to understand like the mathematical equations behind inflation to, for that to influence their behavior. The same is true on the other end, right? People don't need to understand every single thing about Bitcoin to just understand that it's better money. And I think that's like really a boon to my like you know, my outlook on the world, which is like Bitcoin adoption will grow because people will sort of feel and understand that it's better money, even if they haven't sort of sat down and like read all the books or understand all of the, the background information. And that's the hope, right? The, the same thing that's driving them to say, oh, I need to buy the, the new TV or I need to like get a new car right now. Instead of thinking about that differently, the opposite will happen too, as people start adopting Bitcoin. That's, I'm excited about that. <laughs> 
something I've thought about for many years at this point with respect to Bitcoin that you actually bring this up in your book. And I kind of smiled when I saw you bring this up because I've been saying for a few years that the Occupy Wall Street movement that happened after the 2008 crisis, everybody in New York City crowded into the park, they set up their tents and everybody was singing their folk songs and like really upset with what had played out with how the banks were rescued in the 2008-2009 crisis. There was just no meat behind, there was no action behind the protest. And I've been telling people, I think Bitcoin is an extension of the, the core of like what the Occupy Wall Street movement was all about, but there's actually an engineered solution in action that is now being supplied into that cultural movement and I and uh I don't know if philosophy is the right word or just really just a cultural movement, right? You start off one of your chapters with this Occupy Wall Street. I'm just kind of curious if if A, you agree with that, and B, just kind of is it even more profound than that? Or is or does that really kind of encapsulate how you how you view this? No, I think that you're dead on, right? Like, there's no way for me to not think of Occupy Wall Street and Bitcoin as just mission aligned, right? They're doing, they're trying to do the same thing, except, you know, one is more effective. Um, I, I, and I think that it's particularly for my audience, right? Like, my audience is skeptical of big banks, right? And they're maybe a little bit less skeptical about the relationship between big banks and government, but they don't like that either. And so, like, this is not like, that's not rocket science. Like if you are like down with Occupy Wall Street, you think the system is rigged and unfair. You think the rich people are getting favorable treatment and you're okay sitting in a tent in, in Wall Street and occupying Wall Street, then you're really going to like Bitcoin. And I think like that, what you just described is absolutely right. Like those two things are mission aligned. And what I describe in the book is actually a little bit like more detail, which is to say like, Bitcoin is a, a flat, open like protocol where all the people are peers and you're interacting on in a voluntary basis. There's a lot of aspects about Occupy Wall Street that were the same, right? It was sort of a leaderless thing. There wasn't somebody in charge of it. There was no centralized entity. It was sort of people getting together on a peer-to-peer basis, like protesting. And so I draw an analog between that and, and the Bitcoin network uh, in, a, in a way to illustrate it. But you know what's fascinating is that you know we all saw Occupy Wall Street happen, and we probably saw that before we heard about Bitcoin for most people. And as the book went out, I got more than one person reach out to me and say that they were like, I wasn't at the Occupy Wall Street protest, but there's plenty of people who reached out to me and say they were. And when they read the book and they read that chapter that you're talking about, you know, there's one person who wrote to me and said like, just the way you described it brought me to tears because it brought me back to that moment. And not only is it sort of mission aligned, as I said, but like Bitcoin provides an actual, like efficient, like effective tool to do some of the things that Occupy Wall Street was trying to do. That's super good feedback, right? If somebody is actually there and like the description and the analog speaks to them, that's, that's high praise. One of my personal pet peeves, like, you know, if my wife was in here, she'd really get a kick out of me admitting this. <laughs> but like, I have a pet peeve when people, I guess I have a saying, there's a ton of problem identifiers and very few problem solvers like that are actually solving the problem and saying, here's the solution that will do it. Most people just want to go. And I saw the, the Occupy Wall Street as being much more of a problem identification 
movement of like, hey, this there's something wrong here. I don't have a solution to solve it, but I'm really angry about it. Right. And I just want the whole world to know how upset I am. Right. And I think there's so many people in the world like that. And there's so few that say, I agree, there is a problem. And here's an engineered turnkey solution that actually is better, is truly better than that system over there. And that's where I think Bitcoin is, is that, that latter part. I think there's there's some value in sort of the the expression that I'm angry about this problem that I see in the world, right? If you if you feel like maybe not everybody sees that problem, like I get that, but I think what you're saying is right. Then what are the solutions? Like what are the effective solutions? And you know, in my mind, you know, I'm biased, but I don't think that there's a person who really believes in sort of the fundamental issues behind Occupy Wall Street that shouldn't be supporting Bitcoin because it's like I said, it's the effective way to accomplish some of the same things that you're trying to accomplish. And in Bitcoin, one of the themes throughout the book is Bitcoin provides a new lens on the problems because there's plenty of people left of center, progressive people look at the world, they see lots of problems, they see things going wrong. You know, that's true for everybody, right? But like, that's certainly true for people on the left. But it, like, Bitcoin provides a new lens to look at those problems and a new lens to look at the solutions, right? Bitcoin provides solutions that. A lot of people on the left side of the political spectrum haven't really thought deeply about, and that's why I'm excited to share it with people. And just to to be fair, like you can't engineer a solution without first complaining and having a reason for having a problem. <laughs> right, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, there's a pretty substantial amount of discussion in your book about too big to fail banks. For somebody who doesn't even realize that term or they've heard the term, but they really just don't understand the implications, uh, lay this out for them. There's a lot of angst and, and sort of umbrage taken, especially on the left, but probably with a lot of people about this idea that the banks were bailed out in the 2008 financial crisis. Nobody really heard of too big to fail at that point. Uh, but it's really just a matter of the counterparty risk and sort of like when one bank fails, then a bunch of others are going to fail. We saw it starting to happen. The government stepped in as a backstop back in that uh, during that financial crisis. And, you know, like just from a political standpoint, like people were upset by this, right? Like they're bailing out these banks to make sure that um, the banks are solvent, but these people are losing their homes. Obviously, it's a little bit more complicated, right? Like if the banks fail, then the whole economy crashes and you end up with like a much worse situation. And the the whole idea is like, well, how do we get to that point? Like, how do we get to the point where the banks were had that much power, that much interconnectedness, that much sort of counterparty risk so that if one of them goes down, then it causes trouble for everybody in the world? Like that's not doesn't seem like a good system. So really what I try to do in the book is just outline for a novice who hasn't thought about it a lot. Like Bitcoin provides an option for like becoming your own bank. <laughs> and like you like the things that you have like in your bank account right now, like a savings account and a checking account and a credit card, like Bitcoin replaces all of those things in, in different ways. We can not only reduce our reliance on these huge institutions that sort of control way more than they probably should, but we can also sort of change the dynamic between the banks and the government in a way by taking the power away, taking that monetary energy away from those institutions and putting them in the hands of people is all sort of a step in the right direction. So I think that, you know, the intention behind that is to, again, like there's a target audience for my book out there that thinks like, you know, is very skeptical of big banks and doesn't think that they're serving people that need to be served 
or that they're favoring wealthy clients or connected individuals. And all of that is true. And I'm just offering them to look at it through like a lens of Bitcoin instead of the, you know, the lens of maybe some of the other left-wing politicians that they're listening to uh, normally. You know, I'm glad you presented that the way you did, because if we had a time machine and we went back to 2008 and were served the exact same environmental conditions that they were dealing with back then, you would have had to have made the exact same decisions, or you would literally have freezed up all exchange between all market participants if they didn't act the way that they did. You know, it's funny, I mean, because as, as we know, like a lot of people give Jerome Powell a lot of like a hard time about the decisions that he's making. You know, like, I don't know, you know, if people have said this, like, I don't know what decision you do make, right? Like question is like, what's the system in place that's creating this problem? And, you know, in that moment in 2008, we had to solve the symptoms, right? Like we had to take care of what we saw on the surface and we weren't able to say, hey, what's the underlying systemic issues happening here that's allowing this problem to be created in the first place. So maybe, you know, like, you know, my view is like gradually over time, Bitcoin adoption goes up, understanding of Bitcoin goes up, understanding of the legacy financial system goes up, and we gradually transition to a new system that is built with more intention and sort of has an eye out for these problems. But you can't, well, you could, or you could advocate for it. Like I'm not advocating for like a snap of the fingers overhaul of the whole system. It's not going to be good for people. And just like you said, like, in that moment in 2008, you're not solving the underlying issue. Like, There's no way you could. You need to just solve the problem that's presented in front of you. Just the way Jerome Powell is making decisions right now. And he's like, yeah, there's no good decisions. So you know, there's, there's nothing Jerome Powell is going to say uh, that a Bitcoiner is not going like, to criticize him for. So you know, he's trying to fix the problems that he has in front of him. And it's a systems problem. It's not a symptom thing. Yeah. And it's so exciting to know that this Bitcoin system, this network has been engineered over the last decade since that moment where there wasn't an option to move to another way of conducting exchange. But in the meantime, there's been a whole lot of work and a whole lot of brilliant people that have dedicated their lives to engineering the solution to actually have a place to pivot to as they continue to go down this destructive path that's required for fractional reserve banking and too big to fail banks. So yeah, fascinating. In the eighth chapter, I have to just tell you, as as a former military person, there's nothing more important to me personally than the points that you raise in this chapter about Bitcoin potentially offering less war, less deadly conflicts between nation states. And I really enjoyed the way that you kind of lay out how here in particular, the United States has has really pivoted away in Congress as far as like them actually declaring war and going through the act of like, well, how are we going to fund this war? And it's just moved and gravitated away from like, well, we're just not even going to have that conversation anymore. We're just going to go do kinetic force anywhere we want and nobody's even going to vote on it. Walk the dog for the listener. Take them on the layout of this because it was so well done in, in your book. Again, like this is an issue that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, right? Like they really care a lot about it. And I think that, you know, one of the points that I try to make in that chapter is, like you said, the gradual shift away from sort of an armed conflict being tethered to a voting populace that's engaged in like civic discourse. 
So, you know, I provide this example, you know, of, of World War II, where not only do you have Congress voting to declare war, which is like the representatives of the people actually saying, this is a war we need to fight and we will fight it. But you also have the populace engaged in tax increases and rationing and um, buying war bonds and all of the things that you could do and, and actually fighting in the war, right? You have draft and people are like, you know, actually being drafted to fight in the war, volunteering to fight in the war, et cetera. And, you know, it seems very quaint when you think, okay, this is what happened in World War II. And we've all seen the movies and we've read the books and we kind of know what that you know must have felt like or we kind of can imagine it. And it's literally the opposite end of the spectrum from what's happening now, right? Like there, there are no votes in Congress to actually declare war. The, the World War II was the last war that was declared by the United States Congress. There's no conversations about how we pay for the war. There's no conversations about, you know, like, is this something that the populace wants? And the only way, and this is one of the points that I make in the book, that you can have a 20-year war that is unpopular is because they're printing the money to pay for it, right? There, there is no way that, you know, in a liberal Western democracy, you can fight a war for 20 years that nobody wants to be fighting or is it very unpopular without paying for it with printed, you know, made up money. And so the premise here is that, you know, by adopting a Bitcoin standard or some version where like a dollar is backed by a Bitcoin or something like that, there's no way for you to actually fight a war that like the without engaging with the populace in a way that's meaningful. Like have a discussion. How are we going to pay for it? We can't just print the money. So we have to borrow it and pay it back, or we have to tax you for it, or we have to make sacrifices somewhere else. Like it's not saying that war can't happen. And it's not saying that a country couldn't defend itself if it needed to. It's just saying like it needs to be really important and like really like the populace has to be behind it. And I think that's moving us in that direction has to be good. Having more buy-in from people about whether or not you fight a war, how long is it, how are you paying for all of that stuff in a democracy should be stuff the voting population has a say in, and we just haven't. So, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq are examples where, you know, the people weren't forced to make sacrifices back home for either one of those conflicts. Nobody's standard of living went down. Nobody had to ration their butter. Nobody's taxes went up. In fact, taxes went down. So the war just seemed detached. It happened someplace else. My representative didn't vote for it. My taxes aren't going up to pay for it. That doesn't seem like a healthy system. So Bitcoin offers at least an opportunity to rethink that and potentially improve it. So that's, that's the premise, at least some of the premises behind the, the chapter. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. When we look at developing nations around the world, you have a chapter dedicated to this chapter five where you're talking about the disenfranchised communities and how they've been victims of the dollar-dominant fiat currency system. What can you tell the listener that Bitcoin offers these communities that isn't, I guess, obvious uh, just on the face value that you now have this decentralized money that's not being totally destroyed? Because you have... I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea that some of these currencies are getting debased by 50 to even 100% a year. So beyond that, how else would you say that Bitcoin benefits a lot of these communities? That chapter, by the way, was the hardest chapter to write. Like I was just in a depressed state for two weeks while I was working deep in that chapter because you're not just talking about like, okay, you have the dollar and then these other currencies aren't as good and they're in, you know, like they have really bad inflation or something. What you're talking about is a system where the United States is in a position of privilege because they have the world reserve currency and they can manipulate, lean on, in other words, take advantage of other nations, usually that are poor, for the benefit of the United States, the benefit of maintaining dollar hegemony. 
So it's not just like, oh, we're going to fight a war or we're going to like assassinate a person, you know, elected government official to make more money. It's actually to def- to preserve the definition of money, right? Like what the dollar is the global dominant reserve currency. You need it for all trade that happens all over the world. And we're going to preserve that status. What it provides is an opportunity for people to be using money that's not controlled by any one government. It levels a playing field. So it's not just sort of like, oh, my money is being debased, so I'm going to use Bitcoin. But if everybody's using Bitcoin, then it levels the playing field. And it doesn't give one nation sort of the ability to print for free the world reserve currency when every other nation has to work, provide services, provide some sort of good to gain those dollars. Like uh, it just sort of makes everything fair. Like if you're, uh, no matter what country you're from, no matter where you're born, you get to use Bitcoin and uh, everybody else does too. It's a lot of privilege to be born as an American and say, oh, I get to use a dollar, right? Like it, it seems weird to say like where you're born dictates what kind of money you can use. And most forms of money are really bad. Like the dollar's bad, but like it's the best dirty, you know, it's cleanest dirty shirt. And so Bitcoin offers a different lens through that, right? Like no matter where you're born, you get to use this. And um, a, con- a nation, no matter how economically or militarily powerful they are, like the United States can't change the Bitcoin protocol and everybody's operating on an on a equal footing. That provides a lot of promise. Like it's hard to imagine what the world would look like after 20 years of that. I can't even try to imagine what it looks like, but I would imagine that's something that's an ambition worth striving for. One of the challenges that I think we have on both political spectrums, whether you're talking conservative or progressive, mm-hmm. is this idea that on the Hill, they've grown accustomed to being net consumers and doing it through the debasement of the currency. On the conservative side, I would say that where it's difficult is through the just the defense industrial complex with the acquisition process of military acquisition of these really expensive multi-billion dollar programs and the incentive for elected officials to vote the money and the work into their district. On the progressive side, I would say it's the social programs that they've become addicted to consuming way more than what they actually bring in in order to get votes of, hey, well, we'll, we'll give you this program. We'll give you that program. So both sides of the aisle like has this addiction to being a net consumer. And Bitcoin's, you know, as we're talking to politicians about Bitcoin and we're saying, hey, this is better form of money. Deep down inside, both sides of the uh, of the aisle have to be saying, yeah, but but I can't get elected if I'm not like vote basically stepping in front of the flow of money and getting this money to flow into these districts that that I'm being elected into through these programs or through like this defense industrial complex. How do you broach that subject? Because it doesn't seem like that's something people are willing to openly discuss or even admit is the case, but like, it's very obvious that that's the incentive structure. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about this in the book where, you know, the politically feasible thing to do is just sort of inflate the money. So you don't need to raise taxes and you can just sort of go into debt 
And obviously, if you get to print the money that you're using, then that's that's an advantage point of view to, to have. So what's interesting about what you said too is like in sort of standard political culture out in the in America, like people think, oh, Democrats tax and spend and Republicans are f- fiscally conservative. This is not by true by any stretch, you know, and I think like, oh, when Democrats do it, it's called tax and spend. And when Republicans do it, it's called something else. But really, nobody's taxing. They're just spending, right? They're just mm-hmm. like they're staying down. Nobody's raising taxes. It's just they're spending. So I think it's important because this is gets to the fundamental issue about like a person's relationship with their government and their government's ability to print money to do certain things or not. And I think that the the stance that I'm taking is essentially that an adoption of Bitcoin and it it won't come from the politicians. It has to come from the people from the ground up because yes. as you said, there's no incentive from politicians to change their mind about this. But they might be forced to, right? Like if enough people get behind it and we're self-custing and we're imposing like our views, not imposing our views, but explaining our views about how this is better, like it will catch on. But the net benefit of that is to make government, it might make government smaller. That's fine. There's plenty of areas in which a government can be smaller, but it will more importantly make it more efficient and transparent. So it doesn't in my view, like Bitcoin doesn't end, you know, spell the end of like taxation or the government. It just means that the government will have to communicate more clearly about this is why we're taxing you. This is why what we're spending the money on, be able to prove that they're spending the money on that and then be able to prove, you know, be transparent about these are the goods and services that we usually used to provide and we're no longer doing that. And I think that there's things on both sides of the political spectrum that people aren't willing to get rid of, but that's why we're in a democracy. So we get to decide like what gets cut like how high our tax is going to go before we elect you out? What are you spending the taxes on? Does that align with my priorities or not? And I think that there's a lot of room to sort of reimagine like the relationship that a person has with the government or with taxation or with spending at the government level without saying that, okay, well, Bitcoin exists, therefore the government is going to like cease to exist. I think that there's a lot of sort of options between those two, you know, two options. I've got a pretty pessimistic point of view on how this is going to resolve itself in just that like the tax is going to be paid. It's just how it's manifested itself, right? And the tax is being paid through debasement at this point because we've maxed out the debt load and you're starting to see just the interest expense alone that's starting to creep up to the revenues that are generated through taxes. We're getting there very closely. So I just think that the general populace when we would take 100 people, they're mm-hmm. saying, I know it doesn't intuitively feel right that I should just get a check, a UBI check or whatever you want to call it. I know that there's, there's something that doesn't add up about that, but I really don't care. Just give me the check. Right. And just give me the check because like, I have no disposable income, which is a function of, and, and I, you have a quote in your book that I think is, uh, let's see here. You say in your book that the wealth inequality we see in, in our society is a systemic issue created by the type of money we use, which I completely agree with. And I think that the only thing that's going to actually ca- that's going to force people to come to the realization that that they shouldn't want the check is just mm-hmm. sheer pain. It's just I don't think that we can rationalize through academic arguments and explain to them, well, actually what this turns into is a flat tax across everybody in the population, regardless of what your income is. 
So if right. you make 10,000 a year or you make a million a year, that tax rate is exactly the same for both of those two people by choosing debasement. No, I, I think it's great. It's an opportunity to educate people too, right? Because as you're sort of implying, any inflation rate hurts poor people or people who are struggling to make ends meet are going to feel that much more than somebody who's more well off. And that just compounds over time, right? Yeah. yeah. The inflation rate, we say like a lot of people, it's all about derivatives, right? Like, the inflation rate might be going back down, but it's still higher, right? The prices don't go back down. The prices still stay high. They're just increasing at a slower rate. That's all that means. And so that's hurting poor people, working people, like people who are struggling to make ends meet. And I think that there is an opportunity to educate people about like, right, when we decide not to tax people and we're just going to pay for it through inflation, like who are the winners and who are the losers? Who are the losers and who are the bigger losers? And then have like a dialogue about that. And maybe you're right. Maybe we don't get to educate everybody in time or that we don't get that sort of tipping point into Bitcoin as sort of a savings technology. And we have to rely on the pain. I'm hoping that doesn't happen. I don't want that to happen, but it might. Jason, as I'm thinking through this as we're talking, it's just if I have to try to defend the person that's saying, just give me the check. I don't I don't want. Hey, nerd, shut up. <laughs> right? right. As, as, as a person would be saying all this and making the intellectual argument, be like, Hey, yeah. nerd, shut up. Just give me the check. That person, if you have a choice between the federal government doing more QE or mm-hmm. handing out a UBI check, right. like they're going to take the UBI check because it actually benefits them more as opposed to the QE that's just bidding equity prices to oblivion and yeah. benefiting that person who's saying, give me the check doesn't have ownership of equity. They're just no. working paycheck to paycheck. So it's actually beneficial for them to make that argument to say, just give me the check because the UBI thing, like they've been doing that for a decade and it hasn't helped me out at all. Yeah. In the short term, they're absolutely right. Right. Like the sort of the, it goes to the Cantillon effect, right? You're yeah. not the people, if you do it the other way, then certainly the people who don't need any help are getting the help. And certainly there's something to be said about like, all right, during the pandemic, we're going to send out checks. Like, why don't we be a little bit more discriminatory about like who's getting these checks? Like, instead of sending them to everybody, because you know, like you said, that person who says just give me the check, like they're a human being who needs to feed kids and needs to keep the lights on, and they don't see a way out of that, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is help that they need, and it's hard to tell somebody who doesn't have food on the table. Like, you need to be thinking two or three steps ahead. Bitcoin is a better option, <laughs> you know, like forget it, just, you know, like uh, bow out of the system because it's, it's rigged against you. Like it, people can't do that. Right. So we just need to keep educating. And then hopefully, uh, like I said, the, the transition is gradual. I, th- I do think like an abrupt transition to Bitcoin seems devastating to a lot of people on the planet, uh, but a gradual one seems like we end up in a better spot for everybody. So keep on educating. And then, you know, if people really need it, then you can help them. But you have to be really thoughtful about how you do that. You can't just send a check to everybody in the in the country and not expect prices to go up 12 months later. It doesn't make any sense. It's interesting because I was on a panel one time where we were talking about UBI and Jack Dorsey was like, well, you know, I think we're run, running out of options. And my point was, if you're truly talking about a system that is dying, like it's unrecoverable, you have to balance a QE, UBI, liquidity flow into the population as you're transitioning to a new system that can be stood up that's fair and balanced and equitable and yeah. can't be manipulated, right? right? If you think the, the existing legacy system can be salvaged, 
you have to stop doing both of those things immediately. And I guess in a fractional reserve system, I just don't even know that that's possible. I think that history has taught us at nauseum that a fractional reserve system always fails with, with enough time. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of like how long, whether it's 40 years or 50 years or 20 years or whatever it is. It's not that I'm personally promoting, and I don't think you are either, Jason, that I'm promoting UBI or I'm promoting QE. I'm saying if we're going to bridge to a new system, there has to be liquidity in that system. You just can't put your hands up in the air and let something that's completely based on debt and completely impair itself down to zero because literally it's going to be apocalyptic in society if that's what yep. we choose, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you you can see pretty quickly, like when when people work really hard and they still can't feed their family, like how quickly society deteriorates. Yeah. You know, like civilization goes out the window pretty quickly. So I think that you're right, and and it, it reminds me of this other point, which is is I think is important, which is like. There's a lot of people who are incentivized to keep us fighting like left right issues like blue and red like hey this shouldn't this UBI shouldn't happen this sort of welfare state shouldn't happen whatever but the truth is like politics some people are coming up with solutions because the world is broken in a fiat system and if they don't understand bitcoin or they're not really sh- fully clued into how the system works they just know it's broken they're coming up with in some cases good faith like solution attempts right like we can't just let people starve to death. Like we need to do something. And, and kind of what you're saying, like if you know the system is broken, we need to transition to a new one. And what do you do in the interim is really important because I, I don't think that you can let society unravel. I don't think that you can sort of like, like you said, apocalyptic economic outcomes. I think that you need to keep it float, keep it floating for long enough to transition out of it. And and I think you're right. Like just saying, okay, well, we're going to save the system by just removing both of those things. No more QE, no more um, UBI. It, what that means is like the whole thing just deteriorates. There's too much debt in the system for that to be sustainable. It just can't happen. So there's not really any good options, right? Except to just keep people educating people about Bitcoin and hope that we get a smooth transition to a new system. It all comes down to education. Yeah. Just back to my concern. I'm just concerned about the person yelling, nerd, give me my money. Right. Exactly. I mean, I've been called worse than nerd. So I'll take <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll keep it G-rated here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. In your book, you talk a little bit about Bitcoin being bipartisan. You talk about Lummis and Gillibrand uh, working together. Since writing the book, I'm curious if that opinion has changed or you still kind of hold true to what you were talking about. I think, you know, I tried to describe it in the book as sort of aspirational. I wrote the book as quickly as I could in good conscience because I know that this is a thing, right? Like, I, I think that my biggest fear is that Bitcoin becomes this political football that both sides are just using to fight against each other. And you see plenty of that right now, especially the loudest voices in Congress are, are doing this. And one of the hopes behind the book is to say, this might be one of the very few things where we don't need it to be a political wedge issue. We don't need to divide people on this. We can actually have people coming together with this issue. I think that the intention behind what I wrote and sort of my thinking now is sort of as aspirationally, like I, the book is not written to change politicians' minds. It's written to educate uh, voters. And so there's plenty of people like the addressable market of People who vote Democrat because they don't see any good option, uh, they're just going to vote for Democrats, and they don't know a lot about Bitcoin is pretty big. So I'm thinking 
Like, I'm hoping that if we get enough voters educated, uh, that pushes the politicians to a point where it actually is truly bipartisan. It's not a political wedge issue. It's not just used to divide or score political points. And I do think that um, that there's still hope. I think that a lot of the people who are against Bitcoin are Democratic people, but they're also older. And so I, th- I, I do think that there's an opportunity to sort of educate people about Bitcoin and its benefits before it reaches that tipping point of, you know, like a lot of the other political issues we have where you're never going to change your mind, right? Like there's just no way you're going to admit defeat on like, oh, I was wrong about abortion for the last 30 years. It's not going to happen. So like, I don't want that to happen with Bitcoin. And that's why I wrote the book. That's one of the main reasons I wrote the book. Let's get us away from that tipping point. Let's see this as a, a, a place where people can come together and actually have conversations and talk about, like you said, solutions instead of just problems. There's a lot of potential for that to happen. I guess the short answer is it's an as- like bipartisan approach to Bitcoin is an aspiration and it continues to be. I love that response. What is something you believe very deeply that you think very few people understand or appreciate? That's a good, I mean, like the obvious answer is Bitcoin. <laughs> I think. But I, I think that. Yeah, beyond Bitcoin. Yeah, no, of course. There's a lot of different directions I can go with that. I'm trying not to get canceled. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should. I think that, you know, in the general populace, the, just the definition of money and what it means is a huge hurdle for a lot of people just starting. I think that that's probably like number one conversation. Like you don't know what money is and that's okay. Let's learn about it. I think within the Bitcoin community, what I get a lot is... There's three kinds of people, people who agree with me politically, and they're also into Bitcoin, people who disagree with me politically, but they like what I'm doing because it means more people will learn about Bitcoin and they're supportive of my idea. And then people who disagree with me politically and just absolutely are rabid about like fighting me on Twitter or whatever. And what I get most often is sort of people defining for me what they think progressive means in this very extreme echo chamber way. And it paints me in a way that says, oh, well, that's an easy argument to argue against. So that's how I'm going to define what your view is. So I just think that within the community, Bitcoin offers, at least for me, a lot of opportunities to talk to people I don't agree with politically and then find common ground. And what I found fascinating about that is that if you have two people who are Bitcoiners, then they can have a conversation about even political issues, even touchy political issues. And that you can almost trust that the other person's going to come at it with it with good faith, that mm-hmm. you're going to have a real meaningful conversation. And even if they say something you disagree with, they're not trying to score a point with you or try to make fun of you or call you names. They're actually just trying to engage and understand better. And I've had countless conversations with people who are don't agree with me politically. They agree with me on Bitcoin. And let's talk. Here's another thing. I don't like I don't like how Democrats say this. And we actually have a conversation that actually gets somewhere and people understand uh, maybe both sides a little bit better. Like, that's a beautiful thing. I don't think there's, there's hardly any of that going on now uh, in our society. So I think Bitcoin offers that option for us to just have better conversations with one another. That doesn't really answer your question, but that's something that I feel strongly about in terms of like, yeah. the opportunity Bitcoin provides for us, even within our community, even if you're onboarded to Bitcoin. Go and talk to somebody you don't agree with politically. You're going to have a better conversation than out in the the rest of the world. It's so, so important to focus on the ideas and not the individuals and and separate that. 
when you're having discussions and to, and to just, I guess, have a deep appreciation for critical thinking and picking apart ideas as deep as you possibly can to, to come at a truth. Because I think both people want to arrive at the truth, but I think especially nowadays, so many people just have this emotional baggage that really gets in the way of their ability to continue to stay focused on the idea and to critically dissect it. Like their, yeah. their insecurities are manifesting themselves in the way of that pursuit. And um, yeah. I agree. And I, you know, I'll just add to it where in the best case, both people are having this conversation and they want to arrive to the truth or better understand, even if there is no truth, you know, capital mm-hmm. T truth, trying to understand in the worst case, you just have two people who both want to win, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why people like they yes. just want to win the argument, right? Yeah. And that's not helpful. And that's why you get people just sort of going to their own corners, right? Like I'm just going to talk to people that agree with me about this because I don't want to have to like, you know, fight with this other person about it. And so just in my own experience, I like said I didn't I haven't like removed myself from like my echo chamber. I've just sort of added another one and just a kind of uh, I don't say unique, but it's a pretty like rare experience for me to sort of be in like liberal politics echo chamber and then also Bitcoin echo chamber and see, like take a step back, like, wow, you guys are all like, sometimes you guys are saying the same thing and you're just fighting over it anyway. So it's it's just been an interesting sort of vantage point to say, like, I never expected myself to dive into the Bitcoin rabbit hole or be part of like Bitcoin Twitter. But, you know, that echo chamber is just a different echo chamber than the one I'm used to. And it's interesting to see the, the dynamic relationship between those two things. The way you describe that of a person having the desire or the need to win and tying that to insecurity and tying that to just, I'm going to take this a step here. I, I hope I don't lose people. When a person doesn't have any disposable income. It's really hard for them to feel like they're actually progressing in society or able to move forward. In fact, when you're a net consumer of society because you just can't progress, you're actually feeling like you're falling back. I think you actually develop this insecurity of, well, I'm just not going to lose next time mm-hmm. I have an engagement with anybody, regardless of whatever the topic is. I just, I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of falling back and feeling like I'm. You know, if you're playing a video game, I used to get to level three. Now I'm only getting to level two. And now I'm only getting to level one. I am not going to lose. And mm-hmm. it's that insecurity of feeling like maybe you're falling behind. And I think that's mm-hmm. why it's so prevalent throughout society that the engagements that we're seeing online are just immediately turning to, well, I'm not going to lose no matter what. And it's right. not even about the, the, the discussion point or the <laughs> idea. It's about not losing. Yeah. And I had this conversation with a colleague the other day where it's like, I don't think I ever would have been able to see this without like Bitcoin, right? Like mm-hmm. seeing this world, right? But it's almost like so clear to me that that fear sells, getting people afraid is going to get you more clicks, get you more views, get you more viewership, like whatever. And so this is what we've seen from the mainstream media. And right now, and at least in America, you just get to pick what flavor of fear do you want, right? Like mm-hmm. the left has their own media that they're going to make you afraid of these things. And the right's going to make you afraid of these things. And really all you get to do is pick the flavor of, of what, you're, what you're scared of. And so to your point, like when you're fearful, 
of the other side or like, you know, fearful of your situation and like feeling hopeless, like you can't win no matter what. And the game is rigged against you. Then people like they don't, they're not the best, their best selves, right? They're going to not engage in that conversation in good faith. They're going to try to win. They're not going to lose. And so it's just not a healthy place to, you know, I don't have any solutions to fixing the whole like media empire or how we manipulate people to be fearful. But at least recognizing that that's happening is is really important. And it's not just one side, right? Like it's both sides happening at the same time, just different flavors of it. Jason, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. For people that want to learn more, here's the book, A Progressive Case for Bitcoin. Anything else that you want to highlight or that you want us to put in the show notes when we wrap it up? No. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the chance to talk. I mean, it was, it was great. I think that if you're looking for the book, you can find it on bitcoinprogressive.com is the website I set up for the book. And you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, C. Jason Mayer is the, is the Twitter handle. And just appreciate the time and the, and the support. Thank you, Preston. Yeah. Loved having you on. Do you have any trig questions that we can put in the show notes for uh, <laughs> all these hardcore I'll, math I'll, Bitcoin people? <laughs> I'll spare people the double angle formula. If you, you know, I, I, I'm already having trouble making friends in the Bitcoin space. <laughs> I don't need to give trig homework. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for making time and coming on the show, Jason. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.